Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. In this episode, we'll explore the scripture readings for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 27, or Proper 22, which this year falls on October 3rd. We have a couple content notes for you today. We talk about ableism and queerphobia connected to marriage during our deep dive, and we discuss divorce at some length throughout the episode. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. So, our deep dive today is into marriage. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today, (laughs) uh, as they say in Princess Bride. So, at my college, uh, this was the day of the lectionary that my campus pastors would always skip and replace with something else, and would never mention that they had done it to anyone, and I didn't even notice until I was a senior, I think, because a startling number of freshman students, especially, would be getting phone calls from home in the early fall that their parents were getting divorced now that the kids were out of the house. And while these pastors were thoughtful and nuanced preachers, those kids did not need to hear these texts at that particular moment in their lives. But that said, as a parish pastor and in a very different setting, I never skipped these texts. And in fact, I once joined a congregation because the pastor I heard preach them was so thoughtful and life-giving about it. Yep, I also do that as a general rule if there's ever... For this and for other stuff, right? If there's ever anything that has been used to harm, that is what needs to be preached on or it needs to not be read. But ideally, that is what needs to be preached on because otherwise the only preaching that happens on it is the horrible preaching. I actually had to preach on this for my internship. It was the second sermon that I preached on internship. Nice. Yeah. The first one was the Syrophoenician woman in Mark. So (laughs) I just started strong. Yes, but as we look back on the history of marriage in the world, we know that it has not always been about romantic love. In fact, that's mostly been the minority. Like, you know, it was Mm -hmm. nice when it happened, but it wasn't a necessity for most of history for marriage to happen. And in the Bible in particular, marriage is often described more like an economic partnership between families rather than something that two people decided to do. And while in the Bible... And also in many other historical times and places, women have had less choice about who they married. Uh, There are also uh, times and places where men had limited choice as well. Mm -hmm. And it's important also to note that one of the anti-Semitic tropes that Christians have is to talk about this this passage and other passages like it and say that women were considered property in biblical times, and that's actually not true biblically. There are a variety of circumstances under which women were considered property more so than their own independent people. That's in a U.S. context, that's in a global context, particularly a white Western context. Biblically, yes, women didn't have as much agency, and historically women didn't have as much agency in, in a marriage, But they weren't property. And one of my favorite examples of that is in Numbers, the story of Mala, Hagla, Milka, Noah, and Terza, the daughters of Zelophehad, who... Yes, I love them. Yep. 
I, there are some of my favorites, but they receive an inheritance and because they advocate for it. And so they actually create and change inheritance laws. And that even impacts the inheritance laws of the United States because that is, because we are in a Christian supremacist country, that is cited as justification in legal inheritance laws in the United States in the early days. Yeah. But that's an example that they were not property they actually right. were human beings with some amount of agency, not a ton, but yeah. And also, it's not like the ancient Jewish culture was especially terrible about treating women. They weren't the best. They weren't the worst. And like all civilizations, they had times when women had more agency and power in their lives, and times when they had less. Mm-hmm. I read an interesting paper once that hypothesized that you could track how Israel as a kingdom was doing throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and I I don't remember if it included the New Testament or not, by looking at, at how much power the women had. Like, for example, when the Bible is telling the stories about Deborah the judge, who was so powerful, uh, Israel was actually doing really well right then. And when the stories uh, of women being mistreated happen, uh, Israel tends to be doing much less well. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, we can trace that both with women or with Jewish people, right? When we look at the book of Esther. Sure. Which some people read last week. We did not because we do a different track for Hebrew Bible, but. Right. Right. When there are different ways in which different communities, whenever there's a scapegoat, whenever there's a community that is being treated worse, there's probably economic or other distress happening and they're becoming the scapegoats. Yeah, absolutely. And then specifically, we're talking about this because it comes up in Genesis and in our gospel reading. And in the gospel, Jesus' words, just to be very clear with everybody, Jesus' words are about protecting women and giving them a measure of stability in their lives. Yes, Jesus is talking about not getting a divorce, but in that time, men could write, could get a certificate of divorce kind of whenever they wanted. And that let them out of any accountability or responsibility for right. the woman. Possibly for any children that they had together. Yep. If they wanted, that yep. was up to them. And so the analogy that I use for this is the equivalent would be Jesus saying, you have to pay child support and alimony. Like that would be the modern, the contemporary equivalent is like, that is, that is what he is doing. He is putting in place supports and safeguards for people so that they are not economically distraught because of divorce. Right. If by marrying someone you say that you are taking on a certain level of partnership and interdependence, to use the word we used last week, (laughs) then you don't get to just abandon that with no warning. Jesus wants you to continue caring for that person even if you aren't good at being married anymore and need to not be married. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. which doesn't necessarily look like child support and alimony. But for example, when my parents got divorced when I was 10, uh, there was a little bit of child support involved, but there wasn't any alimony because my parents both had careers where they earned fairly similar amounts of money. So it can look like any number of things, but they were still good at being co-parents and supporting each other in that way. Mm-hmm. So, And sometimes people are actually better at being co-parents when they are not together. 
Oh, yes. Oh, thank goodness, yes. That is absolutely true. Yeah, anybody that says they're staying together for the kids probably doesn't have Oh, actual... that's a load of crap. Yeah, they probably yeah. don't actually have a good understanding of how they are impacting the kids presently. Yeah, I had a conversation with a church member once about that and pointed out that if you're staying together for the kids, basically you're trying to lie to your children 24 seven and a, that almost never works because kids are smarter than you think. And B, what does that teach your kids about what marriage is supposed to be like? Yeah. Right. Like, so it does not give a good picture of marriage. Yeah. In that particular case, it was also because that particular person was a terrible liar, but yes. Fair. Also, marriage is complicated in the United States context. There are lots of ways in which marriage is, I would argue, better in other countries, or at least clearer. Sure. So in the United States context, we put civil marriage and religious marriage together, unless people intentionally untie them, which rarely ever happens. So as a pastor, right, I, in many states, am required to sign the marriage certificate to affirm that I have married these two people. Yes. We are used as agents of the state and the state does not pay us for it. Mm -hmm. Not that we're bitter, but yeah, I would really like to not be agents of the state. Colorado actually yeah. like anybody can, you can witness your own marriage if you want. So there is within states, there are different rules about who can do it and who can't. And there is always a civil option, right? You can get a judge or you can get somebody from the, from the government. Yeah. Usually it's a justice of the peace or That's a judge it. or a someone justice like that. Of the peace or something to officiate the legal part of the marriage. If you want. Also like most of the time, those are perfectly lovely ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Like those people like that part of their jobs because the rest of their job is usually a lot less fun. And so they will do their best to, to give you a very lovely ceremony. My mom's current marriage was a, by a justice of the peace and it was just lovely. So Yeah. So there are plenty of ways to do that. It's complicated to be an agent of the state. And I think the way that I have interpreted it, each pastor does it differently. The way that I have decided to do it is to make weddings as accessible as possible for people and to push into making them personal because there is a history of restricting weddings. So if I'm going to be yeah. an agent of the state, I'm going to be one that pushes into more accessible weddings and more accessibility yes. into the institution of marriage. But other people refuse to do the legal part. And I think that that's also a really important and good perspective and just kind of everything in between. Right. And just in case anyone out there is in the process of uh, getting married or wants to talk to somebody about getting that done soon, I would also want to throw out there that there are some states that have laws about you can't have something that resembles a wedding if it's not legally binding. And so oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I've run into this a few places. So, like, if you're doing a vow renewal or if you're doing the religious part after they've already done the civil part or if you're doing something like that, you have to be really clear in the wording of how you do the ceremony that this is not the legally binding wedding. Hmm. I, I've heard stories of people who, like, got married by a justice of the peace but didn't tell their family and wanted the family to think that when they did the religious bit, it, that was actually the legal part. And there are some states where actually the person officiating the wedding has to tell people, no, this is not the legal part. Uh, because bigamy 
is a thing and uh, fraud is bad. And so there's every state is different about how that works. But that was also a major issue before same-sex marriage was legalized in several states. There were several states where you you could do a, a blessing of a relationship, but legally speaking, you couldn't do something that resembled a wedding if it wasn't legally binding. So Interesting. It's usually less of an issue now. I did not realize that. That's that's particularly interesting given, I think, there have been, like, during the pandemic especially, like, people having small weddings and then having a big wedding. And some right. people, and, and sometimes telling people and sometimes not telling people. and Right. So some of the complexities of marriage also are that if you receive disability payments, if you're on disability in the United States, then if you get married, you risk losing your benefit. Yeah. When people talk about marriage equality, and I am still working on shifting my language, when people talk about marriage equality, they are almost always erasing disabled people from that because there isn't marriage equality when people who are disabled will lose their benefits if they get married. Right. And the same thing is also true for many elderly people who depend on Social Security. Yep. I have witnessed a blessing of relationship for that reason. Yes. Yeah. And that also comes into play in religious institutions. So, for example, the LCA, the denomination that Kay and I are both a part of, has a really terrible understanding of marriage and requirements around marriage, especially for clergy. So the ELCA passed the Human Sexuality Statement in 2009, which is before same-gender marriage was legalized in this country. And so the definition, the official definition of the ELCA remains that marriage is between one man and one woman, which is problematic for some pretty obvious reasons. Yeah. And... Then the ELCA had a policy of requiring um, clergy to be held to the highest standard possible, which at this point has now, like they've now decided that means marriage. So everybody has to get married if they're in a relationship, if they're living together. It has to be marriage. And they don't even care if it's a religious ceremony. The ELCA is requiring legal marriage. Which makes yeah. no sense. Uh, I'm okay with them not requiring a religious ceremony, uh, in part because so often the religious ceremony is unfairly tied up with the wedding industrial complex, and it can seem impossible in some areas to get a affordable religious ceremony. Ha ha having seen some truly terrifying wedding policies at congregations in large cities, yeah. But that's not really what you're talking about, and I get that. Yeah, and that's and that's yeah. fair. I think it's the like requiring people to get married at all is really complicated, especially for queer people, especially for disabled people, that there is such a complicated history and family of origin stuff that goes into marriage. Sure, and even for straight, uh, able-bodied people, that has sucked for so many yep. people and has caused so many painful divorces, and it's not okay. Yeah. yeah. And the space that my pushback on requiring legal marriages, it's an like the ELCA is a religious institution requiring a legal thing, but not requiring like it, it's inconsistent. I think we shouldn't require it. But then also like there should be flexibility in 
which things we're talking about, where if I oh, yes. am really against the legal institution of marriage, I can still have a blessing of relationship, that sort of thing. So yeah, the ELCA is one of the worst that I've seen because of partly the timing involved in when our policy changed and when the United States laws changed. Because we suck at updating our paperwork, which is actually a pretty common bureaucracy problem. I was going to say, uh, we are that. especially yeah. bad at it. Yeah. Yes. Also, it's important to note that in a lot of Latin American countries like Mexico, I think also Argentina, Argentina actually, like their journey towards same gender marriage and queer rights is one to be admired and very different from the way the U.S. approached it. But in a lot of Latin American countries, which are heavily Catholic, and the Catholic Church does not allow same-gender marriages. Yeah. A lot of those countries, though, do allow same-gender marriages because they have a clear distinction between civil marriage and religious marriage. And so even if people are going to do both... They have to do their, the civil part separately, so they'll usually do it in the morning or the day before or something, and then the religious celebration right. and commitment later. And that separation is also true in most of Europe, I understand, and that means uh, in part that religious ceremonies are a lot less common there because there isn't the tie-in for the religious ceremony and the wedding industrial complex, uh, mm -hmm. big party kind of thing, uh, that there is in America, so... Yeah, so we just need some changes in this country. Yeah. Not that that should surprise anyone listening to this podcast for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, been an ongoing theme. But. Yeah, yeah. And so when we talk about marriage, if we're talking about legally, marriage is hundreds of rights and privileges afforded to two people uh, with proof much of the time. So depending on who you are, you have to show a marriage certificate or that sort of thing, which include access to health care, tax benefits, access to people in medical circumstances, so in the hospital, um, next of kin, yes, defaulting for next of kin stuff, all sorts. Power of attorney. Yep. All kinds of stuff. All things. sorts of stuff. That's really important, and that's part of why DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, was so harmful, because it kept many people, many queer people who were in particularly queer people in same gender relationships from being able to access those rights and privileges. And yes. we still restrict it even, even as same gender marriage is allowed. Yeah. And to dive into the history of that for just a moment, in some states, it was possible for people to sign legal paperwork that gave each other most of the rights that a wedding would give them. But setting up that paperwork and getting it notarized and uh, having a lawyer look at it to make sure that everything was the way it was supposed to be for your particular state because the state laws changed so much. Mm -hmm. That was hugely expensive compared to just going to down to the county courthouse and uh, finding a justice of the peace. Yeah. So that is part of what really kept those rights from being shared in the way that they really should have been yep. for so long. And the part of it too was people still were taxed based yeah. on that. So even if I got to put a partner on health insurance, I would get extra tax because that would be viewed as income. The Whatever yeah. the company paid into health insurance would be viewed as income. And very often, like, each one of those rights would mean a separate piece of paperwork. And so you'd be mm -hmm. signing, like, dozens of them. And, it, yeah, it was just ridiculous. Yep. 
And then there's, right, from a religious perspective or from a faith perspective, and obviously I'm talking about my own faith perspective as a Lutheran pastor, as a Christian, but I think this is a pretty good understanding of it from a faith perspective. Getting married, so particularly the wedding, but then this has implications for everything that comes after, is people committing to do life together in front of God and their community. And the community committing to support them and hold them accountable throughout their lives. That is a very different thing, and that is not something that a legal, that a marriage certificate necessarily constitutes or even implies all the time. Um, But that is a very important, when we're thinking about marriage and wedding, how we're thinking about it makes a difference, and, and it's important to have that clarity between, are we talking about a legal ceremony, a legal marriage certificate, a religious commitment, like, we just need clarity. Yeah. We are not clear enough as human beings. Communication is good for you. Mm-hmm. And speaking of communication, so people seek out marriage for any number of reasons. And usually it's not just for, like, one particular reason. Usually there's a whole, like, interlocking network of, of stuff going on that mm-hmm. means that you want to get married to each other. But there are some reasons that people will give in this world for why they got married to that particular person at that particular time that at least my family has personally discovered are not good enough Mm -hmm. to make the marriage last long term. And so I wanted to run through a few of those uh, real quick. For example, uh, if you want to be a parent and you think that the other person who you are currently dating would also be good at being a parent, that's not necessarily a good enough reason to marry them (laughs) unless you have a bunch of other stuff going on. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're going to be living together anyway, you don't actually have to get married, and often that's not going to hold you together either. Um, If your family keeps telling you that it's time for you to get married to someone, that doesn't mean that you have to marry the particular person that you're dating right then. Also, it doesn't mean you have to get married because families are terrible and put lots of pressure on people. Sometimes. And you get to make that decision. Yes. And if you're an adult, you probably get to decide how much you actually talk to your family, and that will impact how many times you have to have that conversation, too. Indeed. If you ran out of money for art school and you would rather not move back in with your parents, that doesn't mean that you should marry the person that you're currently (laughs) dating. Although, to be fair, that one was in, like, the late 40s, early 50s, and I kind of get why she did it, but still. There is, of course, the evergreen option of, oh, look, it's a positive pregnancy test. (laughs) Folks, no, seriously. Like, okay, you're going to need to see a lawyer. That's true. But that is not a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Because the person that you're dating seems to have a lot of money. Please, please don't go there. That's a bad reason. Also, just because they seem to have a lot of money doesn't mean mean that they do. Nope. And finally, I'm going to put a few qualifiers on this one. Health insurance. Health insurance is a useful thing to have in America these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, And it can be, uh, frankly, life-saving in some cases, uh, depending on the insurance company, I suppose. And there are people who have to get married for health insurance reasons. That doesn't mean necessarily, though, that you marry the person that you're currently dating. Because shoving a person who you're currently in one type of relationship with into another type of relationship without being really clear about why you're doing it can end very badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's exhausting and miserable for everybody. On the other hand, if you have 
a, say, platonic relationship where you have known each other for a very long time, you are very important to each other, and you both understand that this is 100% for health insurance from the get-go, that might be less painful. Yeah. It, it depends a lot on the people involved, but still. And that, that one is similar to, right, for green cards, um, for immigration yeah. access. Because the United States health insurance and immigration, everything's are so messed up and so harmful and so hard to access. There are ways to work around them. And it's, I guess I want to be clear that Kay and I are not condemning anyone's marriage in saying that these are like not good enough reasons to get married. Like, please have other reasons too. I'm just Yep, having other reasons. Is where I'm going with that. And if it is for health insurance, like Kay said, to be really queer. queer. (laughs) You did not do that one on purpose. (laughs) That was was on accident. Sometimes I do it on purpose. That was on accident. What was that? uh, The the wedding of Chuck and Larry or something? It was a million years ago, but there was a movie. Um, Adam Sandler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't watch actually it, see it, but I remember hearing about it. Yeah. So there are good, like, there are reasons that you might want to get legally married that maybe in general are not good reasons to get legally married, except if you are having, and this is partly where relationship anarchy comes in really helpfully to say there are a variety of different relationships that we have. The important part is that you are clear about the promises you are making, the commitments you are making, the accountability around it, and you are negotiating that, that it's a very explicit conversations about this is what this means, this is how we're going to be in relationship, those sorts of things, so that it doesn't backfire or... And that's what premarital counseling is supposed to help you with. Theoretically. Theoretically. Premarital counseling is not like an admission from those getting married that their marriage is probably going to suck and they're going to be bad at it. And it's not an admission that says that you're probably going to get divorced. It Instead, I, I like to compare it to uh, getting your oil changed and getting your, your annual checkup. You talk about some of the, the central things that are going to be hugely important to your life together and you make sure that you're on the same page and uh, maybe you learn some things about each other and hopefully you get a few tools for problem solving down the line and hopefully you also get a relationship with someone who can help you with some of that or at least help you get help with some of that uh, if you need that down the line too. Yeah I actually had never heard of premarital counseling as like a, a sign that divorce is on the horizon so yeah I think premarital counseling is great when you have someone who can do it well. Yeah, I am one of those uh, irritating pastors who, if I'm going to marry a couple, I insist they do premarital counseling. It doesn't have to be with me, mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily have to have any of those conversations with me. There are some conversations that I will be there if you want me to, but I don't have to be there. I just need to know you had that conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. But I insist on it for everyone, and I've had some really interesting conversations about the assumptions people make yep. as a result. Yeah. yeah. The single best reason that is good enough to get married to someone else, even if you only have the one reason, as far as I've come up with in my life so far, has three points to it. You actively want to be married to this person in particular right now. Mm. You want to be married to this person in particular right now. Yep. The timing matters, the person matters, and the marriage is something you want to do matters yeah yeah that is true and then a brief wedding tradition debunkings 
with Emily and Kay. <laughs> um, it's a special segment just for this episode. I hope. Hopefully. Um, wedding <laughs> tradition number one. The unity candle. Y'all, unity candle in particular is terrible. It actually comes from a soap opera. A soap and some people like soap operas, and that's okay. Yeah. Like, if you, you want can... to celebrate soap operas in your life, you go for that's it. That's fine. But, right. like, let's be perfectly queer. The Unity Candle is not Christian and no. is has some really problematic theology behind it. There are lots of unity things, and I think, and, and we actually, like, have a tradition of, like, how are we symbolizing the unity of people? Giving of rings is part of that. There are lots of options for what you can do. But having two candles that are lit and then those two candles are used to light one candle and then you blow out the original candles is really problematic like telling people that your individual identities cease to exist when you get married it's really problematic also really problematic if for example, one of your candles doesn't light, and so only one of you is actually lighting the unity candle, and the other is just pretending to light it and blow out their candle. <laughs> Not that that happened with a family wedding of mine at all. <laughs> yep, did happen. You know who's not married? That couple. Not married anymore. <laughs> I don't think that's why. Not because of the unity candle. No, yes. but I'm just saying. Yeah. No, I, I have a requirement. I will have a unity candle ceremony in your wedding if you insist but you don't get to blow out your individual candles they have to stay lit yeah. you what you are doing is you are creating a marriage between the two of you that's mm -hmm. what the candle is about mm -hmm. as far as i'm concerned yeah and yeah there are a variety of other unity traditions i think that the the pastor who married my husband and I very nearly cried during our premarital counseling when she asked so what unity ceremony would you like to do and we said um, we'd like to give each other rings. <laughs> and she was delighted. Yeah. And some pastors love those things too, and that's fine. And I have, there is one that I really want to be able to do for a couple one day, but nobody's asked for it yet, which I had a classmate of mine in seminary got to do a wedding where they mixed two different colored chemicals together and then set it on fire. Ooh. And then when it was set on fire, the two colors merged. And, like, became one color. And that sounds awesome. And also, like, you'd have to probably turn the fire alarms off. But I really want to do that <laughs> one day. I've had different ways of people doing sand. So I know sure. a couple who, it was a blended family. So they both had kids on their own. And so not only did the two people getting married have uh, have particular colors of sand, but then all of the kids got picture, got colors of sand. And so everybody poured it into a larger container so that cool. it was multicolored sand. Or I had friends who did it with like a giant hourglass thing. So then each year Ooh, nice. they could flip it and they would slowly blend more and more and more together, but still have like Aww. individual colors. Also my best yeah, that's nice. my best friend did poetry. So she and her husband each had their own poem and then some of the words from it were made into like magnetic poetry. And they took time to make, they had like prearranged what the joint poem was going to be, but yeah. they had two poems that they chose and then made a third poem. And so they have on their like fireplace mantle, a thing that has 
all three poems. So it has their individual ones oh, cool. and then the joint one, which is really cool. Yeah. Sure. So there's lots of options for symbolizing the unity that comes with marriage. Just don't blow out your candle. No. You still exist. Mm-hmm. I promise. Do you have... I, I added this in last minute, but do you have any? Because there are lots of debunkings we could do. I would say that if you are a member of a couple getting married and you want to do that, like, building a cross together thing in your wedding ceremony, I've done this a couple of times. There's a couple different versions of it. You buy it online and it's a kit and you build a cross together. And usually there's like, it's the two pieces of the cross go together and then you tie them together with a piece of rope that symbolizes God tying you together or something like that. I don't necessarily mind the symbolism, but okay. A, a cross Mm -hmm. is definitely a method of execution. Yep. (laughs) Like, Ask yourself if that is really the symbol you want for your marriage. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying. Like, I get that it's also a symbol for Christians about renewal and new life and all that, and that's lovely, but, like, really consider that. And second, you are almost certainly, or at least I desperately hope, your pastor is almost certainly going to insist on rewriting the wording for it, because all of the ones that I have seen that comes with the kit are horrifically misogynist and creepy and unfortunate don't do creepy stuff i once had to do a rewrite uh, pretty drastically of the stuff that had come with uh, one couple's kit and what we came up with was pretty nice but i yeah yeah so yep and but also you don't have to do something extra like that like the the rings are literally the 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 classic symbol or like if rings don't work for you i once married a couple where uh, she wore a ring and he wore an earring because that worked better for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's other options. But, like, you don't have to do the sand or the candle or the mm-hmm. cross or whatever if you don't want to. Yeah. On the other hand, if you want to light something on fire, that is an option. I'm just saying, folks. <laughs> so, yeah. Not that I'm biased or anything. Yeah. And I want to be clear, too, because the ring traditionally, right, like, the woman gets the ring first. And there's a lot that connects it to a, like, she is now my property. She is now... Like, there's a lot of misogynistic undertones, especially in engagement rings. So we're not saying rings are the be-all, end-all. It's that this is a very common option. But it could be bracelets. It could be a quilt that you have as, like, a joint quilt together. You could get matching tattoos. Like, maybe not during the wedding, actually, but, like... Well, yeah, no. That would take a while. I've actually heard of a couple of couples who got matching ring tattoos because, mm-hmm. like, one of them couldn't wear the ring at work. Yeah. And so by getting that tattoo, they always had it. My dad did yeah. construction, so he never had a ring. Um, and going back to the engagement ring thing, I, like, on the one hand, I get that. On the other hand, uh, I, I was very torn about the whole getting an engagement ring when my husband and, got, and I got engaged. But as it worked out, we were long distance until literally a week before we got married. Mm-hmm. And by having an engagement ring, I got to have something that I always had with me that he gave me. Mm-hmm. And that was really lovely. And it connected us. And uh, he actually wished uh, that he had something like that, too. I, uh, I believe I gave him a couple things he could carry with him. But it wasn't quite the same. Yeah. So if if you feel conflicted about rings that is not abnormal and you are not alone Mm -hmm. i will just throw that out there i will throw in a couple other wedding tradition debunkings just really quickly okay giving the woman away is really problematic because in fact women are 
human beings and not property, right? This is part of yes. how we get the tie-in to property, which is, you know, not religious, but cultural. cultural. So other considerations are who is the family who is supporting this person? Um, having both of the people come in with their family, having neither of the people come in with their family. There's lots of other options than having a dad give away a daughter to another man. And you, you can totally like split the difference and find the spot that works for yes. your family too. I walked down the aisle with my dad to the tune of Of the Father's Love Begotten because by golly, I was going to get that pun in there somewhere. <laughs> but... <laughs> But he did not give me away. My my parents presented me for marriage and my husband's parents presented him for marriage uh, in a very equal kind of way. Yep. There are lots of options to make it less patriarchal and misogynistic. Also, the like concept of bridesmaids, fun fact, it, it was bridesmaids used to dress very similarly to the actual bride so that like the evil spirits would they would trick the evil spirits into taking them instead of the bride the night before or people instead of the bride the night before and stuff that one might be an old wives tale I, i've heard a few be. different versions of it, it might and be. like yeah but it's just fun to like tell you the old wives tales the traditions the made-up stuff that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there is no particular rule about which side the bride has to be on and which side the groom has to be on if you're talking about a heterosexual marriage. Yeah. Or even, like, which side people have to be on. Right? Like... Yeah. That you, I've had it where frequently they're like, oh, yeah, and we'll have, like, this person's family on this side and this person's family on this side or whatever. And then one time I had a pastor was like, and if you want, what actually might be good is to switch... So that the people on your side see your face. And the people on the other person's side see their face instead of seeing your butt. Aww. Yeah. Also, you don't have to have everybody on a given side be the same gender. No. We are beyond that as a culture, people. Yeah. And then finally, it, I don't know why on earth anyone would come to this particular podcast looking for marriage advice. Please don't. <laughs> like, that seems like a terrible plan. I mean, they could go worse places. I, I suppose, yes. But in the interest of covering the topic of marriage thoroughly, I will say that we will have a link uh, in our episode description to a image from the Gottman Institute, which the Gottman Institute itself puts out a lot of marriage advice and materials kind of stuff. Uh, and generally, they're really quite good. Some of it tends to assume a heterosexual marriage, but not all of it does. So you may need to keep an eye open for that. But the image that we're linking to is not gendered advice. Uh, but I took a look at it, and it's pretty good advice for just like how to encourage and uh, keep your marriage strong. And the other comment that I'll make is that I heard once, and I think this might have also been from Gottman Institute materials, that the strongest predictor of whether or not marriage counseling would work or not was because they filmed a whole bunch of different marriage counseling sessions and just like looked at body language and uh, listened to the words that people said. And the one thing that actually predicted whether or not it was going to work was if the couple rolled their eyes at each other during the sessions. None of the other body language, none of the other language that people chose to use really seemed to be consistent predictors of whether or not the, the that counseling would save the marriage or not. But if they were rolling their eyes at each other, that generally signaled contempt hmm. that they had for one another. And contempt is the death knell of a marriage. 
in a big way. So if you are married and you ever notice that your feelings about your spouse are starting to head that direction, it's time to sit up, pay attention, and put some work in. Interesting. So, yeah. Anyway, diving into our readings for today, our first reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. God recognizes that it is not good for a person to be alone because we require a relationship. So instead of only having one human, God creates many animals for companionship at first. And then from the original human, God creates two different people to be in relationship. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of relationship equals. God is creating two people from this one first human and there's, there's a lot of really bad theology about, like, who comes first and who comes second and what that means about all the things. But if you look at the Hebrew... And I could make comments about prototypes, but I won't. Right. If you look at the Hebrew, which we'll get into in a minute, it's actually, like, this is the point at which there are now two different names for humans and humanity. And so this creation is a creation of equals. It's a creation of mutual helpers and supporters and companions. And this is not like the companions of the Doctor in Doctor Who. No. Who are decidedly a step down from the Doctor in power, privilege, knowledge, all of that stuff. But it's more like the Doctor and River, who actually, like, get married. That they are actual equals. They are both time lieges, but they also can relate to each other on a very equal basis. And so even if their timelines are going in different directions. Yeah. When we jump into the verses, uh, in verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So the word helper there is also the word in the original Hebrew that is frequently used to refer to God. God is frequently a helper to humanity or various individual people. Mm -hmm. And this makes me think of the movie Pacific Rim, where Mako, uh, who is a woman, somewhat reluctantly becomes Raleigh's helper and partner. Uh, Raleigh is a man. Although not quite in a godlike way. I mean, she is still definitely extremely competent and useful and knows a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> But then they don't go on to have a romantic relationship. They are very important to each other, but they are completely platonic as far as we see. Relationship anarchy! Yeah, and that's exactly as far as this verse describes this kind of relationship. This verse is not necessarily talking about a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. We do, in fact, need each other outside of romantic relationships. And for the most part of the, uh, of the Bible, those aren't really a thing anyway. Yep. Like, we, the Bible talks about lust, but it does not talk about romantic partnerships. Yeah, so. yeah. That's a really good and important point. I think we read a lot into these verses in particular about relationship and romanticism that yeah. excludes a lot of people, especially asexual and aromantic people, but also yeah. that just is not contextual for the passages. Sometimes the person who's most important to you in your life is not a person you have any interest in having sex with, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... There's more than one yes. person that is really important in your life. And it could be sexual or romantic with one or more people, or it could not be. And that's okay. That is, in fact, possibly a great example of God's love and reflection of God's love, which is what being in a relationship is really about. Yeah. 
And then in verse 19, we read, So out of the ground the becoming God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the human to see what they would call them. And whatever the human called each living creature, that was its name. Thank goodness King Lech from the Graceling series was not this first human because he would have given terrible names. This, like, naming, right, we have a variety of different names that we have for animals, and some of them make sense, and some of them are platypus. <laughs> but the duck-billed part of the platypus does make sense. That is like, true. Like, that is definitely a duck-billed. That is true. Yes. But it reminded me of Bitter Blue in the book Bitter Blue, is reading through her dad, King Lex, books that he had created, or that he, and that he had had burned, that the librarian Deeth was rewriting, because he could remember them word for word. And one of the books was a book of meanings. I can't remember what it exactly was called, and I was having trouble Googling it, and I'm not at home, so I don't have access to the book itself. But it had, like, pictures of things, and then a word for what it was, and some of them made sense, sure. and some of them were like, a knife, which then was called medicine. Yeah. He's a super creepy, super awful character. I mean, also but, surgery is a thing, but yeah. But yeah, this was not surgery. Yeah. yeah. So thankfully the first human was not King Lech. And then verse 23, we read that the human said this. So the right, this is right after God has now created two humans. And so the one says... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of human this one was taken. This is a wordplay which connects back. So this, at this point, there is ish and isha in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. So this is a wordplay similar to earlier in chapter 2 of Adam coming from Adama, or humans coming from hummus, earthlings from earth. Farmers from farmland. This kind of wordplay, that's what we're talking about in chapter two when it's when God creates humans from the earth. The English translation doesn't really get at that wordplay the way that the Hebrew translation does. And so that's why when I use it, I like to say humans from hummus or earthlings from earth because that gets at. But you shouldn't eat humans with, you know, chips as yeah, a snack don't, like you would with hummus because that's not how that works. Don't eat humans with chips. So this is ish and isha. So it's both having the same root. And this is the first time that it's happening. Before that, we were just talking about Adam, which is human or humanity, depending on the context. Yeah. Yay, language. Indeed. <laughs> and then in verse 24, we read, therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. This does not necessarily mean that they form a isolated nuclear family unit. You'll note that in the Bible, having multiple generations living together was very much the norm. Uh, social norms in the Bible are quite different in so many different ways than the modern USA. Mm -hmm. And even within the modern USA, there are quite a number of different social norms. Although they aren't always portrayed as being all that different because biblical scholarship for like movies and cartoons that people make about Bible stories tend to be terrible. Mm -hmm. And so like, for example, Abraham and Lot weren't weird for continuing to live with their father, Tara, until he died. Unlike how, say, Matthew McConaughey was portrayed in the mediocre early 2000s film <laughs> Failure to Launch. 
So Also, this Bible is used by a lot of people to say, see heterosexuality, see monogamy. And in fact, even in your example, right, of Abraham, Abraham had children by multiple women. There's yes. actually like very like when Lot was a horrible person on several different yeah, points of view. But right? yes. offering up his daughters. There like when people talk about like biblical marriage, ninety nine percent of the time they actually have no idea what biblical marriage looks like because most of the time it is some version of non monogamy. Yeah. It may or may not be ethical, but it's non monogamy. It's the most common form of marriage in the Bible. Yeah. For a lot of reasons and we're not really here to go into that. Yeah. But yeah. Just to, like, push back against, like, compulsory heterosexuality. Yes. Our second reading for this episode is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalms 2, 8, and 22 to describe Jesus as not only with God during creation, but also both suffering and raised up in a place of prominence now. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of subjecting others to rule these two passages kind of talk about that humans were given the earth. The earth was subject to humans' rules. And it reminded me of this meme that I saw the other day of how people typically have said, like, dinosaurs ruled the earth. No, people. Dinosaurs did not rule the earth. They just lived here. And similarly, humans and the climate. <laughs> we have tried to rule the earth, and it's not going so well. It would be much better if we just lived here or at the very minimum yeah. stewarded the earth or any number of things. But as it is, we're trying to rule the earth. And you know what? The earth is biting back. It's called climate change. It's not going well yeah. for us at all. And then yeah. as we dive into the verses in verse two, we read, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom God also created the world. And this reminded me of Professor X at the end of the X-Men trilogy movies, where we think that he has like died and been obliterated by Phoenix, by Jean Grey. And then we discover that his consciousness has been transferred into a person with no meaningful brain activity. And then he speaks and says, Moira who's the scientist that's working with them. So Professor X has spoken to us by a physical body that is a progeny of the human body consciousness thing. Yeah, I, talking about minds and consciousness and brains and bodies always gets complicated. There's no, yeah, we don't have words for that in the English language, really. Yep. Uh, yeah, I also read verse 2, and it was that last phrase, uh, through whom God also created the worlds, that struck me. Uh, because, see, you would think with this verse that the existence of other planets, even the idea of other planets that could support life, would not have been such a surprise to people. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think we have to lose hope for the existence of Vulcans yet. Maybe they're just not sure we're ready for them yet. And uh, frankly, I wouldn't blame them. <laughs> right. So. We are not ready for them yet. That is accurate. Yeah. No. And then in... Chapter 2, verse 8, we read, Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside humanity's control. It 
sure doesn't feel like all things are under our control, <laughs> does it? Uh, but the truth is that we could actually handle a lot more that, than we currently do. We could actually have conscious control of a lot more, like as the human race, mm -hmm. uh, than we currently do. It's just a matter of priorities. If we take a moment to imagine how different the world would be if, for example, medical research and treatment were considered a moral good that we should attempt in themselves and not have them be subject to the whims of capitalism, mm. we would be living in a very different world. We might even be living in a world that is closer to the Star Trek semi-utopia that uh, we have imagined uh, than we are currently living in. So, Yep, that is true. Yeah. Or if we, you know, decided to care for the Earth instead of subdue and dominate it, that would be a yes. similar... Or care for each other instead of subduing and dominating each other. What? And like feeding people. No and, but, way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> then in chapter 2, verse 10, we read, It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. There is a lot of complicated theology around suffering and whether or not it is redemptive ever. Uh, the majority of suffering is in fact not redemptive because it is not, if, if nothing else, then for the mere fact that it is not chosen. It is imposed upon people. Yes. Also, like, God and humans are different. And so oh. God's suffering is one thing and human suffering is a completely different thing. Also true. But it reminded me of the different ways that in fiction, especially in fiction and in politics, which are actually surprisingly similar, that suffering is required. Yeah. Right? People have to either experience suffering. For most dystopias, it's experiencing suffering in order to be motivated into the change or motivated to seek change. But also in politics, people have to either experience the suffering or have a close connection to the suffering. So, like, politicians have to know someone who's gay, trans, disabled, something in order to be sympathetic to them having the rights that they deserve because they are human beings. So this is the, like, reluctant allies category of things. Yeah, I would really love to never hear a politician use the phrase, I understand the importance of women having rights because I have a daughter. Oh my gosh. Like, dude, no. Okay, A, it's always men that say that. Yeah. And B, Dude, no. Like, you, you should have been capable of empathy with a person who is slightly different from you before you had a child. And your ability to procreate has nothing to do with your ability to have empathy. And, mm -hmm. like, as plenty of parents prove every day. And yeah. I, just, no. Don't ever say that again. Yeah. And also, what does that say about your marriage? Because it's also... Yeah. People, probably it's men who are married woman, to women, so. yeah. Or for that matter, your mom. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Any number of, you know, human beings that you know, over 50% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. So do better, people. And then our gospel reading for this episode is Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. Jesus, while being tested by the religious authorities, again turns their question into a reflection on God's will in a way they didn't expect. Instead of focusing on the law, Jesus emphasizes the importance of treating those with less power, such as women and children in that time and place, with respect and care. So one theme for this passage is the idea of regulating relationships. 
right? People are, are testing Jesus by saying, well, what about divorce? How do we regulate these relationships? And it reminded me of The Handmaid's Tale and The Giver, right? So who has babies and who doesn't? Who's allowed to? Each of those places yeah. where it's like, mm, yeah, but let's not actually regulate relationships that well, that way. Or who's forced to have babies and then who's forced to take care of them. Right. Yep. Like, at least in The Giver, it seems like you kind of sign up to be a parent. Like, the the mm -hmm. parenting part. The You don't sign up to give birth to the children, but you do sign up to at least, like, care for the child. And that's at least slightly better than Handmaid's right? Tale, where children are basically just a status symbol. Yeah. yeah. Yep, for sure. As we dive into the verses, in verse 2 we read, Some religious authorities came... And to test Jesus, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And this is one of those, I think this is my go-to example for this all the time, so I'll have to branch out next time if I think of it. But it reminded me of Firefly, the game. So Firefly, the show, has, like, they go on adventures, and some of them are legal, some of them are illegal. There's moral and immoral adventures, all this stuff. And in the game, there are two descriptors of two axes for describing the adventures that they're going on, the jobs that they take. One is legal or illegal, and one is moral or immoral. And I really, really love that those are distinguished because, as we know from the terrible laws in this country, just because it's legal doesn't make it moral, and just because it's illegal doesn't make it immoral. That those are two separate things, and too right. frequently they get smushed together as if they are the same. Right. Which is what these religious authorities are doing. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 8 we read, And then the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So this passage and ones like it always make me think of a comedy special by Christopher Titus called Love is Evil, which uh, evil <laughs> is love spelled backwards, and in which he discusses his divorce and makes the one joke about divorce that I have ever actually found funny. He comments that he lost 28 pounds since the divorce because that's how much a soul weighs. So no matter how necessary the divorce is, no matter how little weight the people involved had put on the marriage, uh, and no matter how like life-giving and wonderful the end result of the divorce might be, generally speaking, as far as I can tell, it, the process of getting divorced always, always sucks. Just like, it's miserable every time. And I would hope that the people around the people getting divorced know that. And they need to acknowledge that and care for them as best they can. Please be kind to your, your friends who are getting divorced. Yes. Uh, because they could use all the support they can get. Yes. Also, for clarity, I when I think about divorce, I think about divorce as more of the funeral or the death certificate for a marriage, the marriage already ended by the time people get to the point of actually filing for a divorce. The, the oh, yeah. yeah. No, if you're filing for divorce, the promises for marriage have been broken already. Yep. And not necessarily by the person doing the filing. Yep. And yeah, that, that is absolutely true. But unfortunately, the legal process, and as far as I can tell, this is true, like, not just in America, but often around the world, uh, is just unpleasant actively for almost everyone involved. And yeah. Yikes. Yeah. I read that same verse and my immediate thought was, wow, another example of Christians are bad at math. Two, 
equals one. <laughs> no, that's not actually how that works, no. Yeah. See, for reference, the Unity Candle debunking in the deep dive. Yes. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, we read, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here's the thing. In this time and place, what Jesus says is actually protecting women who had mm -hmm. less power and less ability to take care of themselves than men did. Women were dependent on the men in their lives, whether that was their father or another relative or their husband or someone else, almost always was or a son. in That's some, or a son, yeah, uh, was often in some control of their life in that culture. And they depended on those men for quite a lot. And the process of divorce, as it now stands legally in America or within the Jewish religion, uh, as it now stands religiously speaking rather than legally speaking, is very different than it was then because in Jesus' time, a man divorcing his wife was basically just straight up abandoning her. Mm -hmm. There were no provisions for continued co-parenting. There were no provisions for alimony or child support. There were no provisions for like her even being able to leave with her own belongings really sometimes. Mm -hmm. it, it all depended very much on her relationship with probably her husband's family and probably with her own family of origin and like whether or not they would take her back in after the divorce was definitely up for debate like that depended entirely on what their relationship was like they didn't have to mm -hmm. so she wouldn't necessarily have anywhere to go and could be thrown into terrible circumstances so when we read this verse it kind of reminds me of watching like an old movie and how we can understand that an older movie might have been groundbreaking for its time, even if it horrifies us today. Mm -hmm. uh, one example that comes to mind is back in the 70s, the movie Kramer vs. Kramer was actually pretty groundbreaking when it was made uh, for its realism about divorce and the people involved and the, the pain that it caused, but also how it could like help people move on and, and live their lives separately. But these days, when you watch that movie... I'm going to be honest, I haven't actually seen it, but I have had it described to me in great detail by a variety of different people by this point, which is why I haven't seen it, because I don't feel like there's any point, because I've heard every single beat of that story already, uh, because mm -hmm. that those are the adults that I hung out with when I was younger, um, and I'm related to. But these days, you watch that movie, it seems pretty horrifying in, in terms of especially how it treats both uh, Ms. Kramer's career ambition and how the child's life should be handled and it, a whole bunch of other factors. There, there's a lot of stuff that freaks us out pretty badly now. But back then, it really was pretty groundbreaking. And so there's an acknowledgement of history. It was different and the world was different and... We're not saying that that makes this stuff okay, but we can acknowledge that it was still progress in its own time. Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot for some of some of the letters that are attributed to Paul as well in the Bible. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Although, honestly, you know, the older I get, I think I've said this before on the podcast, I, I've started to, when reading Paul, I see him less as angry and and convinced that all people are hopeless and just like he seems to be surrounded specifically by people who he is not sure are emotionally ready for marriage yet 
<laughs> I, I've lived that a little bit myself, and I have a certain amount of empathy for that. And so I, when you take his letters that way, instead of saying that, you know, uh, divorce is evil and women are the source of all evil and stuff like that, the tone really changes quite a lot. And so I have become a lot less angry at Paul in the last few years since mm -hmm. I had that realization. And it also makes the Bible a little funnier, too, which doesn't hurt. So, <laughs> yes. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss the nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our full guest episodes and interviews, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. Though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pos Vobiscum. Vobiscum.